Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS podcast. Our topic for today are the revised Aspen guidelines for the provision of nutrition support therapy in the adult critically ill patient, featuring manuscript author and physician, Dr. Todd Rice. Dr. Rice has both clinical and research interests in critical care nutrition and nutrition support in the ICU, and currently serves on the Aspen Board of Directors as the immediate past president. He is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University and the Vice President for Clinical Trials Innovation and Operations, as well as currently serves as the Director of the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Medical ICU, Director of the Medical ECMO, and the Medical Director of Vanderbilt's Human Research Protections Program, or IRB. Dr. Rice is an established clinical trialist having designed, conducted, and published numerous practice-changing multi-center clinical trials in critically ill patients. Since 2011, he has spent considerable research time conducting large pragmatic trials of comparative effectiveness research in critically ill patients as part of Vanderbilt's learning healthcare system. Currently, Dr. Rice also serves as the critical care primary investigator for Vanderbilt's NHLBI-funded prevention and early treatment of acute lung injury, or PEDAL Clinical Center. In the ARDS network, Dr. Rice led numerous studies, including two studies on critical care nutrition. He has been continually funded by the NIH since 2005. So Dr. Rice, welcome. Thank you so much for joining the DNS podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're here today to talk about the new critical care nutrition guidelines that are expected to be published in the very near future. But you actually just completed another huge milestone, which was serving as the 44th president of Aspen. Tell us about that experience and what you accomplished during your year as president. Yeah, so presidency is always a busy year. And then uh, when you're a critical care physician and they throw a pandemic on top of it, it uh, becomes a lot busier. The Aspen Board of Directors, which is what the president sort of leads, is a great group of multidisciplinary people, includes dietitians, includes physicians, includes pharmacists, includes researchers. And, you know, their goal is to kind of direct and guide Aspen and and where the organization goes. And the president kind of gets to sit front and center of that. And so it's nice. There's a number of initiatives that we've sort of taken on and have have tried to advance in the last couple of years. And actually, I think we did a reasonable job this last year. You know, two of the big ones are to try and increase membership, especially physician members. Our physician membership in Aspen has been tailing off a little bit in the last few years. And we're trying to do some things to make Aspen more appealing to physicians that are doing nutrition support and to uh, sort of increase the membership, increase attendance at conferences and those sorts of things. And then kind of almost in the same lines, but but with a little bit of a different flavor, the um, 
leadership of Aspen has also recognized that, you know, we need to be more international in our scope and we need to engage more international members and international groups. And there's been a big focus to have an international strategy and to try and do things like, you know, engage members, but also do things such as education for smaller organizations or less privileged countries uh, to provide nutrition support education in those areas. And so, you know, we made some made some big strides in in some relationships internationally and uh, some opportunities that we now have opened the doors for for us to have ongoing collaborations internationally. Um, you know, over the last year. Normally the Aspen president does a fair amount of traveling and uh, that didn't happen this year because traveling was pretty much off the table with COVID. And so it was a little bit of a different type of busy, lots of Zoom meetings with organizations that were, you know, uh, collaborative with Aspen. Uh, and then, I, and I think this is a big, and it'll be a big accomplishment and a big deal in the next few years, the NIH has decided that they need to put more money into nutrition research. And they're a little bit um, at a loss as to what direction should that should go. And so they've reached out to a few organizations, Society of Critical Care Medicine's one, Aspen's one, um, um, American Society of Nutrition is one, and a few others to kind of ask for our input in, in what should research funding look like in the nutrition realm. And we've engaged with them and are sort of helping direct what we think needs uh, more research, what we think needs more answers and how we can better uh, understand and provide nutrition support to patients that are in the hospital, patients that are at home, healthy, diseased, et cetera. And we recently aired an episode featuring the immediate past chair of DNS, Kate Wilcutts, and she reflected on how, you know, and you mentioned this in your opening comments, but she, she reflected on how the COVID pandemic changed her leadership style and how she approached the year as chair, but it didn't really derail it necessarily. So aside from the, the travel element, how did COVID impact you and your overall effectiveness as president? Yeah, I mean, I think it it made things uh, more virtual. And so instead of having a few board meetings in person every year, like we normally did, we had all of our meetings virtually. Uh, people on this listening to this podcast know that our Aspen conference was virtual again for the second year, although uh, considerably more inclusive and comprehensive, given that we had a whole year to plan it instead of a, a week and a half like we'd had in in 2020. So there's obvious things like that. But I but I think, you know, your point is well taken in the fact that leadership style has to be a little bit different when you're remote. And for me, that leadership involved juggling a lot of balls. I was head of our COVID response here at Vanderbilt. And so I had that sort of big ball in the air. And then Aspen president, which I knew was going to be a big ball before COVID and then with COVID was a big ball. But but you know, sort of was a different big ball. It was leading an organization, driving an organization, uh, you know, um, managing uh, personalities and and getting everybody on the same page and and getting some um, support for you know initiatives that that um, we wanted to do at Aspen for the year, uh, all the while trying to maintain collaboration with other groups. 
So Espen or Falampe or Penza, where, you know, as, as I talked about with the travel, oftentimes we'll go to their meetings and have, go to their conferences and have meetings with them at their conferences. And that just wasn't possible this year. And so we'd have Zoom meetings and calls and find collaborative ways. And, and um, you know, I think it's just a little bit of a different leadership style, but, but I still think that what we, what we kind of um, plan to accomplish and hope to accomplish, we got accomplished in the year and we just kind of had to go about it in, in slightly different ways. So moving on to our topic at hand, which again is the updated guidelines for nutrition support during critical illness. Um, these guidelines were last published in 2016 in both Critical Care Medicine and JPEN. And Dr. Rice, you were a co-author on that version as well. So one change that I thought was interesting that was that instead of consisting of a lot of expert consensus recommendations, the guidelines are now based primarily on randomized clinical trials. So why are we seeing this shift in design and how does that impact the validity or reliability of the guidelines? Yeah, so that's a, a good um, observation and uh, it comes from a, a couple of different things. Uh, the first is, is that unlike the last guidelines where the goal was to try and be as inclusive of everything critical care nutrition that we could, these guidelines were really meant to reflect an update of the previous guidelines with additional and new information. And with that focus, we thought, you know, we don't really have a lot of update to expert consensus recommendations. What we have are new data from things like randomized controlled trials that we could uh, incorporate into new guidelines that we could see if it changes the recommendations or allowed us to have a, a guideline or a um, evidence-based recommendation in the guidelines instead of an expert consensus recommendation. And so from the beginning, the goal was the, the 2016 guidelines that uh, were previously published were a Herculean measure in you know, when you read it, it's 150 pages. And we recognized that we weren't going to be able to get people together and do that every five years, but that the guidelines have some uh, new data in nutrition support and that we should update the guidelines with those new data. And taking those data, as you commented, uh, randomized clinical trial data, and adding them to the guidelines to try and see uh, does this change the recommendation? Does this make the recommendation the same overall recommendation, but a higher strength recommendation, a more valid or more reliable recommendation because we now have even more data. And this level of rigor and using randomized clinical trials and not having expert consensus certainly makes the guidelines more valid and more reliable. But as you've noticed or will notice if you read them, uh, it also means that they're a little bit more focused and they're not quite as broad and, you know, we don't have guidelines in this updated version on many aspects that the previous guidelines had because there wasn't updated data and there aren't available data that allows us to have that, that rigor to use randomized clinical trials and, and meta-analysis from those trials and, and such. What other changes and recommendations can our listeners expect to see when this publication is released? Yeah, so I think the, the publication will, will incorporate sort of the newer data 
into some of the older data, we actually, and this is a difference between the old guidelines and these updates, we actually in these updates didn't go below, beyond 2000, the year 2000, and we thought the practice of medicine and the practice of nutrition support in medicine, in critical care medicine, had changed enough since 2000 that trials before that probably had enough limitations that they didn't necessarily reflect today's practice and so we didn't include those so it's studies that were essentially in the last de two decades the last 20 years randomized trials putting uh, all of those together to see sort of you know what what the data show uh, for the recommendations and uh, similar to the previous uh, there's some high interest topics uh, topics such as how much uh, energy should i provide in patients uh, that are critically ill, whether it's enteral nutrition or parenteral nutrition. And, you know, the data are, are such that um, permissive underfeeding or trophic feeding appears to result in similar outcomes. And the outcomes we looked at were specifically mortality, lengths of stay, lengths of mechanical ventilation, and then infections. And uh, permissive underfeeding or trophic feeds seem to, to produce similar outcomes in that regard to full feeding. And in fact, you know, we did this a little bit post hoc in response to reviewers. When you actually look at the data, there's sort of a trend line that suggests that full feeding or even more than full feeding uh, may actually be slightly worse than kind of permissive underfeeding in our critically ill patients. So you'll see some uh, updates to that and some um, additional interpretation of the data and a nuance to just, instead of just say, well, what about low versus high, high energy uh, delivery? We say, well, this is sort of a continuous spectrum and what do we see across the spectrum? And not just if we say group A was high and group B was low. Uh, you're, you um, also uh, have pointed out that uh, there are uh, some differences in the recommendation for parenteral versus enteral nutrition. Uh, and I think we'll talk about those a little bit later in this podcast. So you'll see some there. Uh, and then, you know, we tried to, and this wasn't possible in the last guidelines because there just weren't data yet available. We tried to look at, at um, uh, specialized lipid emulsions uh, to see if the data were supportive of those reducing mortality, reducing infections, improving clinical outcomes. And so you'll see recommendations about those. It turns out that those data are still uh, in the development stages. And what I mean by that is, is that there's some data there, but not a lot of data there currently. And there'll be more data that will make those recommendations stronger, more valid, more reliable uh, in the next few years. But we at least had some data that we could put it together, give you kind of an overview of, you know, what does it look like if uh, you look at uh, omega-3 lipid emulsions versus non-omega-3 lipid emulsions or soybean versus non-soybean, uh, those sorts of questions. On the line of, or the train of thought with EN versus PN, I did think it was interesting that the authors concluded that there was no significant difference in clinical outcomes between early exclusive PN or EN during that first week. So do you think that that, that result is going to result in an increase in PN utilization during that first week in the ICU? Yeah, great question. I'm not exactly sure what that, what that uh, recommendation will end up doing for the practice. 
what we know, and we actually have, this is probably the strongest data that are in the guidelines with the most randomized trials and the most patients in the randomized trials. Uh, we know that the data suggests that the outcomes between enteral nutrition and parenteral nutrition are really similar. And, and that's exclusive parenteral nutrition, not supplemental parenteral nutrition. And, you know, I was always taught and I always taught others in the past that parenteral nutrition may have increased mortality, but clearly has increased infectious risks uh, because it's through a central line and it's, you know, all of this glucose and fats and, you know, is prone to get infections. But the newer data in this realm suggests that that's not necessarily the case and it's not true. With the caveat that, you know, folks are not putting parenteral nutrition on and just running it for weeks or months. They're using it during acute phase uh, up to a week maybe in, of the critical illness. And in those situations, they're not seeing increased infections. The other caveat with it is, is that currently the goal with parenteral nutrition is not to uh, overfeed patients. And that was done in the past and that may have contributed to some of the worst outcomes. Uh, but if you provide similar calories or similar energy amounts between parental and interdiction, uh, at least for a short period of time, it appears that you get similar outcomes. We think, and we didn't say this heavily because the data, um, the data don't say that this is the only right way to do things, but we think from the, the guidelines committee that enteral nutrition is still preferred because of ease of administering it. Uh, it's cheaper, it doesn't cost as much, but certainly there are patients that may not be easy to give enteral nutrition to, and there are patients where parenteral nutrition may be easy to give and maybe may be the, the, the um, best way to give nutrition. And I think in the past people have been hesitant to use parenteral nutrition in those patients for fear that maybe this has some harm and I might be putting my patient at risk. And I think honestly the data, and we tried to put this out in the guidelines, I think the data now suggests that, that if you're smart and if you um, are observant and watch over your parental nutrition and don't use it with a plan that, you know, I'm gonna keep them on it for months, uh, that parental nutrition is safe and that you can use it and you can use it as a means of providing nutrition support um, in lieu of or uh, in situations where you can't use enteral nutrition. Well, and in the ICU especially, it's good that we have options because we are going to have those very difficult, complex patients who, who we need to think outside the box to, to get them over the hump of critical illness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think you know, we don't we don't say this a ton and it doesn't come out in the guidelines as much as if you hear me talk and give lectures at conferences. But this concept that, you know, we should do the same nutrition support strategy on day one of the ICU as we should do on day 21 of the ICU. I think people are starting to rethink that and say, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The patient's probably different three weeks into their critical illness stay than they are in the acute phase. And I think the same is true for this concept, which is, you know, I think parental nutrition early in critical illness is safe. It's an acceptable way of providing nutrition support, but you should be thoughtful about it every day and say, does this patient still need parental nutrition? Is there a way I can do enteral nutrition? You know, do I need to continue to, to provide parental nutrition? And evaluating that sort of on a continual basis, I think means that you're gonna use a shorter amount of time of parenteral nutrition and you're going to be in that safe window and it's going to be going to be fine for your patients. So I wanted to pick your brain on gastric residual volume. 
because when I, when I looked at the guidelines and I even did a word search because I didn't see it and I wanted to check myself, but it's not listed. So are we actually done talking about monitoring gastric residuals in the ICU? Yeah, I think this is a loaded question, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you're correct. There's not anything on gastric residual volume. And part of that's because there we didn't we didn't find any new data in that realm. And so we didn't think there was an update to the guidelines. The other the old guidelines kind of say we think you should you should stop checking gastric residual volumes at least routinely in your in the critically ill patients. If you want to use it in conjunction with other markers of gastrointestinal intolerance, such as nausea and vomiting or abdominal distension, and then check a gastric residual volume, then you know maybe that's the way to go. But just this checking it every six hours because the patient's in the ICU uh, doesn't appear to provide additional safety for our patients. It doesn't appear to improve outcomes. It doesn't appear, appear to reduce detrimental outcomes such as aspiration, ventilator-associated pneumonia, duration of mechanical ventilation. And so, you know, I think that the concept as we knew of gastric residual volume is one that we've got data now that suggests that it's probably not that beneficial for our patients. And, uh, you know, my view on this shared by many others is, is that we should ask our nursing staff to do something different and something uh, that data suggests may improve our patients, not necessarily in the nutrition realm, but instead of spending that time drawing back the gastric residual volume, returning it to the patient, reporting that number, they should spend spend that time doing some other patient care duties that might be more beneficial to the patient. At my institution, we stopped checking gastric residual volumes a few years ago. It's uh, an ongoing um, uh, pro not problem. It's an ongoing dilemma, an ongoing job, because I think it's something that nursing um, uh, classes teach nursing students is one of the ways that you check for safety when you're providing enteral nutrition in patients is you do a gastric residual volume. And we know now from more recent data that that's not necessarily true, uh, but I think we just have to educate uh, our nursing staff and especially our new nurses that get taught this in school that um, it's not as beneficial as we once thought it was. I, I do think, and I know that, that um, that there are some additional uh, options for monitoring gastric residual volume and or gastric function um, being tested and coming down the down the pike. So it could be that uh, this concept of how much fluid is in your stomach and how well is your stomach working and is your stomach actually passing fluid and contracting and that sort of stuff. That concept may come back, but I think with the traditional gastric residual volume check, I think those are gonna be a little bit of dinosaurs and in the in the past, and we're not gonna be relying on those for, for maintaining view of our patients. And I think those are really great talking points that as bedside clinicians, we need to keep in our back pocket that when we're doing rounds and we're evaluating patients and we're talking with you know new staff or even seasoned staff, Here's what the randomized trials show. Here's how we can keep our patients safe. And here's a whole bunch of other stuff that we really need our, our skilled clinicians to do to contribute to the care versus all of this other non-value added stuff that we do because we've done it forever. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So I understand that writing or revising these peer-reviewed guidelines takes time, which means that as soon as you get to the point of publication, it's almost time to start all over again. What can we expect to see in the future with respect to nutrition support guidelines and these expert recommendations? Yeah, I think there's I think there's two parts to this great question. One is as as there are studies ongoing and as we get more and more data, the topics that we updated will likely be ready for update even more updates. Uh, and so, you know, a few years down the road, you'll say, hey, there's more studies of PN versus EN or or um, amount of energy administered or you know, uh, the lipid emulsions, and we can update those guidelines. But we actually went into these guidelines with a couple other questions that we weren't able to answer. And we think that they could be ripe for sort of their own sets of guidelines. And the, the two questions specifically that we struggled with were the uh, role of probiotics in, in critical illness and and critical illness nutrition support. And the problem with it was, is that the, the data are so heterogeneous. There are so many different probiotic strains at different doses at different times in the critical illness course that it became really hard to try and put all of those together and come up with a unified message in a uh, somewhat succinct manner that would fit into these guidelines. Uh, and so that's one. And then the second is, is that we actually, you'll see if you read the guidelines that the other, another of the questions that we said we would try and answer that there's not an answer to in the guidelines is quote unquote immunonutrition. And when we started tackling the immunonutrition, it really almost has the same problem as the probiotics, except it's that problem on steroids in that there are you know, multiple different immunonutrients. There are antioxidants, there are different omega fat, uh, uh, fatty acids, there are different micronutrients uh, that might be considered immunonutrients. And um, it became really difficult to try and put those together into one message about immunonutrients. We think that should be done as its own recommendation and each immunonutrient may be uh, um, individualized and separated out on its own and looked at on its own. Uh, and then the other part of it is, is that, you know, many of these immunonutrients are almost pharma, pharmaceutical therapies. So they are, you know, IV, they are dissociated from enteral nutrition, for example, they're not given as enteral supplements. And, you know, we think that that probably deserves uh, a little bit of a, of a deeper look and more in-depth investigation and evaluation than we could do in these guidelines. So those are our kind of low-hanging fruit for upcoming guidelines and recommendations. And then, like I said, I think, you know, you're going to see more and more critical care nutrition studies uh, with done with rigor, done in a randomized manner that have results that are informative as to how we should be caring for these patients. And I think, you know, that's just going to result in updated guidelines uh, in the near future that may even address and update some of the questions that we tried to address and update in these guidelines. Do you think that there will be a slowing of research being released given the pandemic and everyone pivoting to a different focus for that extended period of time? 
I don't know. It's a good question. The, you know, what have you done for the last year with regards to your research? For you asked me that question, it's all COVID-based research. But there are also things that we learned in the COVID world, and there are advances for regular research that came out of the COVID world that uh, may actually facilitate more efficient research in the non-COVID um, world or the non-COVID environment, including the critical care nutrition environment. And so my hope is, is that while there might be a little bit of a lull, that overall long-term we will have increased efficiency, be able to ask and answer questions faster and and in a more rigorous manner and and get even better data on what we're what we're doing and should be doing to, to help our patients. So we've just got a couple of minutes left. So my last question, what advice would you give our nutrition support dietitians as they're reading the updated guidelines and working to translate them into their practice? I think the first and foremost, and we kind of say this at the beginning of the guidelines, is, is that guidelines are guidelines and they're not the end all be all. Uh, it takes some clinical acumen, it takes some bedside uh, understanding and knowledge of the patient and then trying to use the guidelines in that realm. So, you know, I think one of the wrong things to do is to say, hey, the guidelines said this, and we're gonna therefore do this in every single patient, because, you know, the reason we are all trained as clinicians is, is to make clinical decisions and provide clinical consultative uh, support for patients based off of the patient's own personalized information, you know, what their comorbidities are, what their current status is, uh, those sorts of things. So I think when you read it, it's meant to give you sort of a satellite view and a big umbrella view and to help you know what data are out there and understand the data. And then, you know, with that knowledge and that understanding, you can then go to the bedside and say, okay, I know all of these studies, I know all of these data, and here's how I think they should be applied to this patient, or here's how that helps me understand what the right thing to do with, with my patient is. So I think you have to you have to incorporate both the knowledge of the data that are out there and the randomized trials that are out there, which I think the guidelines are really good at at um, pointing out and and talking about and discussing and kind of combining into one one message. Uh, and then you take that and you incorporate that into the clinical practice and the acumen of I've seen this before this patient has sepsis, this patient has a higher uh, energy requirement, this patient, you know, may not tolerate internal nutrition, for example, because they're on high dose pressors or, you know, they're persistently vomiting or something like that. So now I can use the guidelines, which say you can use either parenteral or enteral and, and make a clinical decision at the bedside as to which of these might be best for my patient, uh, knowing the exact situation with my patient. So I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't think the goal would be let's memorize the guidelines and just rubber stamp that on every single chart. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, I think the, the goal is to understand the guidelines, understand where they come from, understand the data that they come from, and then be able to use that knowledge with the clinical acumen to provide the best nutrition support care for the patients. Well, with that, we will conclude today's podcast. Um, thank you, Dr. Rice, for taking time out of your day to discuss the development and understanding of these new guidelines. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Listeners, be sure that you visit our website at dnsdpg.org to learn more about translating evidence-based guidelines into practice, and be sure to post your questions in the DNS forum. 
Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.